Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Severi. On a program today, we're finally here, Nick. The month of August is upon us, and the first GOP primary debates are happening later this month. Nick and I will go inside some of the recent pressers by these candidates, interviews that they've been doing out there in the media, the platforms that they're running on, and we're going to break down the people that are in second and third place right now on the GOP side. More on that in just a bit. Uh, also, speaking of the GOP, the front runner for the nomination, the former president of the United States, had some news come out last week. So we need a legal expert to help break this all down. In the next segment, former U.S. assistant attorney and president of West Coast Trial Lawyers, Nima Romani is going to be joining us. He breaks down everything that happened last week in the documents case with former President Donald Trump, but also the Hunter Biden case. We're going to look at the plea agreement deal that fell through what that all means, Nima, in the next segment. Some quick housekeeping notes before I say hello to my co-host, Mr. Severi. Back Your Play with Q is back with an all-new episode. This week, Q had Brandon Jacobs, former NFL running back for the New York Giants, to talk a little bit about NFL training camp, plus a recap of last week's mega boxing fight that happened between Earl Spence Jr. and Terrence Crawford. All-new episodes of Back Your Play with Q, available on LeonMediaNetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And definitely follow Rich over on his YouTube channel at Rich Q on Q. Plus, an all new episode of the Educate US podcast is out now. And I know you know that, Nick. Uh, join Nick, Stacy, Patrice. This week, they're joined by financial wellness expert and author Bobby Rebel to discuss what schools should be doing to teach financial literacy 
education around that subject matter and more. It was really a great episode. I got a few text messages about that. We'll talk about that in just a sec, but new episodes every Monday of the Educate US podcast over on leonmedianetwork.com or listen wherever you get your pods. Really good stuff there, Nick, on, on having somebody, a topic that's not really talked about, like in school. Like I don't remember any financial literacy that I got in high school. I remember home ec, which you guys mentioned in the episode, but I don't remember anything with the financial literacy part of it. So I thought it was really cool uh, episode topic. Um, now I say hello to the dashing Nicholas Saveri. Nick, how are you doing, my friend? Back from uh, Memphis, had some Memphis barbecue, I believe. Uh, tell us a little bit about your your travels through uh, to the state of Tennessee there. Yeah, it's yeah. I was just out there for a work trip. Funny enough, actually, I was out there with one of my coworkers. Yeah, Stacy and I and a team of us were doing some incredible work with a group of schools. So we we had a blast just being able to connect with just our team. Yeah, we went up obviously for dinner. Shout out to the Rendezvous in downtown Memphis. Unbelievable food that's available out there, uh, and just to all the people that were just so welcoming, accommodating. I'll be back there in a couple of months just to visit with some of the folks I work with, and it yeah, was a good time. Not that I would recommend going to the South in the summer, but you know we made the best of it. Real quick, rendezvous. If, uh, if you want to pay us for a little bit more promotion there and maybe a free meal for the next time Mr. Savary heads over there, that'd be great. I, I let you go. I let you go. Go ahead. I'm sorry about that. But rendezvous, if you're listening. You are absolutely right. I committed the cardinal sin in radio and podcasting, folks, which has never mentioned a potential sponsor unless they've actually ponied up a little bit. Even if they're great, unless it's something in your community that does not have a whole lot of money, yeah, you should encourage people to pay up, especially when you're good at what you do, which is what is true for us. At, you know, Can we please talk? But yeah, no, just nice to be on the road, travel with good people and such. And um, But speaking of travel and everything going on in Florida, man, you got your water still hot. All kinds of things are going on. Your governor, if he's still the governor, is out here campaigning. I mean, I don't, I don't know what, what's up with that. So, yeah, we're gonna get, <laughs> where are you guys in the great state of Florida? Well, we're we're good. It's hot out here. Um, that's never going to change in Florida. The extreme weather patterns is something that, yeah, as somebody who's lived here now a couple a couple years, went back to New York a few years, then came back here. You're starting to notice it a little bit more. Like now, it's it's very, and especially because I've had a few flights around the times when I'm landing in the mid afternoon and I'm getting rerouted to other parts of the state, I'm being dropped off there. I have to wait for bad weather to clear in the area. That has never happened to me in my history of flying. It's happened to me like the last three times I've flown back to Miami. So it just speaks about the weather patterns and all that stuff. So uh, I'm doing good though, but you know what? You just transitioned perfectly about the governor of my state right now, Ron DeSantis. And it leads perfectly into what I wanted to talk about tonight because we did mention it at the top about the first GOP primary debate is going to be happening Wednesday, August 23rd, live Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Fox News is going to be hosting this with, with our buddy Brett Baer, who will be leading and moderating this panel. And we're going to do an episode later on in the month with a Democratic strategist and a Republican strategist, almost in semi real time, kind of breaking down the debates, the different talking points, what happened throughout the course of the debate, how both of these folks would prep candidates going forward. So stay tuned for that episode later on in the month. But I did want to get into the latest polling right now, obviously has, according to the New York Times and Siena poll, uh, if you go to 538 and you can see like the national polls, obviously Donald Trump is ahead by a far margin, right? But the biggest thing has been the shift between the folks that are in second and third place respectively, because one of them you may know, and he's the governor of my state right now, and Ron DeSantis. The other one you may not know, and Vivek Ramaswamy, 
who's now starting to climb up the polls, at least uh, with respect to a bunch of different states that have been polled. He's in some places having eight, nine, 10, 12 percent in these primary GOP polls. And I kind of wanted to break down a little bit of what's happening with both of these candidates and maybe why neither of them have caught national traction like the former president. Can either of them take away the stranglehold that he kind of has on the GOP nomination and how he's the early front runner for it? So let's start first with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, because He's been in the news lately, and for something that you would think is, in basketball terms, a layup, Nick, because he recently did an interview with Megyn Kelly, former Fox News host and NBC NBC News correspondent, excuse me, and a wide range of issues. They were talking about this on the Megyn Kelly podcast, and this has been making the rounds across social media. The interview that she did with him, the questions that she asked to him about some of the pressing or not pressing, in her words, social issues that he's starting to fight on behalf of who knows what. And is is he doing it to kind of placate to Trump's base, one around Anheuser-Busch and Bud Light, the other one around the policies he's kind of implemented with respect to Disney World here as the biggest employer in the state. I want you to take a listen to a little bit of the interview, then we're going to react on the other side. Take a listen to this. Much as the base is angry at these woke corporations, and I get it, and I know you get it, aren't you doing the very thing to these companies that conservatives are mad at left-wing leaders for doing, using government to punish citizens for political wrong think. No, not at all. So taking Anheuser-Busch, I mean, we're not punishing them. They departed from business practices by indulging in social activism. That has caused a huge problem for their company and their their stock price has gone down. Well, our pension fund in Florida holds uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev stock. So it's actually hurt teachers, it's hurt cops, it hurts firefighters who depend on that pension fund. And so didn't you support the boycott against them? No, I did. But that's just as a personal thing. But I mean, we didn't have like the the, the state government, you know, necessarily, you know, putting power about it. So why can't Disney oppose your law? They can. And why can't they promote this agenda in their viewpoint? They can. Without being punished by the state. They're not being punished. We're just simply removing... Uh, special benefits that they have had that really weren't they were worse off when it was done than they were before they before they spoke out well no i mean it was first of all we didn't actually do anything to disney there was a government that had been in place that they had effectively corrupted which was not the way it was supposed to be by by the way if you look at how this started in 68 so we changed the governing structure which really didn't even impact them directly. They're just indirectly, they don't like it because you know they don't get to call the shots anymore. But we, they are not entitled to corporate welfare. You do not have a constitutional right to corporate welfare. I know welfare. that, but it's not and about an nothing- entitlement. It's not about entitlement. If I go to my boss and I say, I, uh, you sexually harassed me, and then suddenly he reduces my salary from 200000 to 100000 that's retaliation. I am worse off. And it's not a defense to say, well, everybody else at the company was getting 100000 You've reduced my circumstances. You've, you've punished me. No, but, but that, that's an that's a employer-employee relationship. I think that that's much different. But, but you, this is but, the state but taking but away a benefit. But, but, your, but your position is basically that Florida should be forced to subsidize Disney regardless of how it's going to use those subsidies so that they can weaponize the subsidies they get from the state and turn it against state policy. Why would we want to subsidize that behavior? Well, Why here, should Florida thing, taxpayers I get it, have I get to underwrite it. that? But I don't want a President Gavin Newsom doing this to conservative companies or companies who have a more conservative viewpoint. Ding, ding, ding. Megyn Kelly gets it right there. Um, 
a couple things first from me before I get your takes on uh, Governor DeSantis here and and some of the comments, because a lot of people are really pointing to this interview as again, and we like to say this terminology about it being a layup. It mainly it's because everyone knows Megyn Kelly is conservative. She worked for one of the biggest conservative outlets out there. She has a show that, you know, covers conservative politics, uh, if you will. And here's an interview that's supposed to be not so much a fluff piece because she is a journalist and will ask questions. And you can see why she was rewarded with the highest contract ever when she left for NBC News with some of those questions. But uh, the big takeaways for me were DeSantis, and I mentioned this on another political podcast, and I mentioned this to you, I think, in our last episode or two episodes ago. Some of the things that he is doing in the state of Florida and some of the culture battles that he is fighting against things that no one has asked him to fight for or against are, are large in part, in my opinion, to him trying to create a resume that he can point to the base that's voting for Trump and say, look, I'm actually doing this stuff. Your guy is facing legal battles, hurdles and stuff like that. I'm actually doing the stuff that you guys are, you know, putting videos out there on TikTok and Twitter and stuff like that. I'm actually fighting these folks in the courtroom. Uh, I'm doing either something from a civil litigation standpoint, or I'm holding feet to fire like he thinks he is with Disney and them being the largest state employer and them, you know, kind of boycotting a little bit of, you know, don't say gay act, which that's not what it's titled. I forget the the actual name of the bill right now. So apologies for that. But um, so, you know, he's trying to uh, counteract some of the things that Disney has done by going at them. Right. And which is not a smart move, because like I mentioned, over 70,000 or so folks here in the state of Florida are employed by Disney World. So when I mentioned this on this other political podcast that I went on, that DeSantis doesn't translate nationally. He has a tough time in some of these interviews, specifically whether it be one-on-one or junkets that have multiple people with answering questions because he tends to either lock in, hone in on one specific thing, and then he gets off message or off brand. It's almost like a robot throwing some water on them. And then all of a sudden they kind of short circuit a little bit. He tends to do that is the analogy that I would give in some of these instances. But then I also think back to like what I just said at the beginning of all this, I don't think he would be doing some of this stuff if he wasn't running for president of the United States of America. And the way I know that is because there have been certain things that DeSantis has done here legislatively in the state of Florida that has helped teachers with respect to pay and increasing their pay uh, and making them amongst one of the top in the state, uh, excuse me, in the, in the union, I should say, with respect to teacher pay. So like he's done legislation to try to get teachers more money, but then he does something like this where he introduced legislation where we can't talk about certain things that are you know deemed age appropriate. But again, there are no examples of people teaching things to kids that are not of age appropriateness. So um, what do you make first real quick before we go into another candidate on the GOP side who's kind of rising a little bit up in the polls, but not to the level of the former president so far. But what do you make of DeSantis's campaign overall right now that's kind of hit a little bit of a wall? He laid off a bunch of different people recently as part of the campaign. They fired a guy from social media who put this weird video out that had, you know, almost Nazi symbols like at the end page of the video with DeSantis in the background and this weird shadow. They got rid of this guy. And then now he's going on these on these different interviews and 
people are getting to see the real him and they're like, this guy is terrible. And so the people that were at the beginning of last year saying this guy could be our next president because of how much he won by in the state of Florida. Here I am saying, hold on a second. Florida is not the rest of the country. This stuff does not translate outside of this state. And now that's proving true. What say Nick Savary, who doesn't live in the state of Florida, but we've been following the DeSantis campaign. And then what do you make of the interview with Megyn Kelly and it not going the way it should, specifically when it's it's a conservative uh, interviewer uh, interviewing a, con- a man running for the GOP ticket? DeSantis' trouble really stems from the fact that when you think of every other candidate that's running for the Republican nomination, he's the least plain spoken out of all of them. He's probably the most effective as a politician, you know, as a person who, you know, signs bills into law and is able to get things done. I don't agree with almost anything he's done in the state of Florida, but I do acknowledge the fact that for what his agenda is was, it's a fair level of accomplishment. Now, what he's accomplished is essentially a social agenda, which I find ironic in the state of Florida that you know, people support someone who's basically engaging in a form of dictatorship in terms of social controls, which many people in Florida, many of which of you know or have been related to, tried to flee. And that's a whole another conversation for a whole another day. But yeah, that interview points to the fact that first off, there's some inconsistencies. You know, DeSantis has a legal background, you know, went to, I think it's Harvard or Yale. Um, and you could see he's trying to use, you know, careful language when he says things like, wow, you saw just how I walked away from the mic for a minute, right? But, you know, when she, when Kelly's bringing up that the government of Florida, that the governor of Florida is indeed doing something to Disney. And when he says, well, we're not doing something, what we're what's happening is we're removing. Folks, I'm not an English teacher, but when someone says you are doing something and your response is something being a verb, that we're not doing something, we are the next thing you're about to say, if that's a verb, congratulations, you are doing something. So, you know, when he says, well, we don't, I found it funny that he talks about we don't believe in corporate w- welfare. I don't either. There's finally something that Ron DeSantis and I actually agree on. The issue, though, is that he doesn't believe in this benefit for Disney because he doesn't believe in the stance that Disney is taking as a regards to the, uh, the LGBTQA plus community. And which is, again, that's always the thing I'm never going to understand, that why target a particular community? For what purpose? Other than the fact that you're a bigot. That's essentially what this comes down to. And you decide to weaponize that level of ignorance. So he's going to keep getting hit over the head with that. But he has he continues to fall because people don't quite understand. They understand the stop woke stuff. But when you peel back the layers, first of all, what does that actually mean? What does that mean on a, on a federal level? But this is also someone in, in their state. And I imagine on the debate stage, this is going to get brought up by somebody. This is a state that continues to be an environmental disaster. This is a state that is continuing to not. It's like being on the Titanic and you see the glacier, but instead what you're doing is trying to swat the fly in front of you. There's a massive issue there in the state of Florida. You just talked about this, right? In terms of you know temperature, water temperature. And there are so many things that we've seen come out. Insurance companies. I, I don't know why this is not talked about enough. If you're a homeowner in the state of Florida, there's less and less options. That's not capitalism. <laughs> you know, these insurance companies are just saying, we're not going to deal with this. We're going to leave. 
that's frightening. And when you're talking about the needs of taxpayers, the needs of homeowners is pretty high. What people don't really care about is, you know, the taking books off of shelves because you're scared or offended by it, like the folks in Moms of Liberty like to do. So yeah, I, I mean, he just continues to miss the point. I mean, when when Trump puts forward, first off, Trump had talked about that. That uh, you know, as a person, it's not a company he's going to go after. Like he's a pro, he still continues to be a pro business Republican, which is what the party tends to stand on. But in these matters, yeah, DeSantis has really pitched his tent on a social issue that national numbers tell you is not a winner. One thing I did want to mention before we transition to the guy who's in third place in the GOP primary field right now, DeSantis's immigration law was another big thing and a sticking point for a lot of people in the construction industry down here that they just were not understanding why the governor put something like this into place. And it was a new immigration law. That was that made it illegal to transport an undocumented person across state lines into Florida. It was a provision that was changed after it initially criminalized the transportation of undocumented people within the state. So now remember, uh, undocumented labor, people working on on houses, remodelings, things like that. If you have somebody that is in your vehicle and you're transporting them and you don't know if they're undocumented or not, you could be subject to being arrested. So that was part of the new law that passed into Florida, which had a lot in the in the construction industry, excuse me, in uproar about it. So it was very two steps forward, one step back, because I mentioned about DeSantis and, and something he did good for teachers. And as you were talking, I looked it up. He proposed a $200 million increase to teacher salary in their allocation, their TSIA, while maintaining the current $800 million teacher pay increase. This was back at the beginning of the year that he did this where people were applauding him. So it was like, you do that. And then you pass five other things that the majority of the folks in the state are like, why would you do that? I want to get into the guy who's in third place in these national poll averages. And that is Vivek Ramazani. Um, in interest of full disclosure, we've invited a few candidates on the podcast. So hopefully in the coming weeks, we'll have some of these folks on before the first GOP primary, if not afterwards, we've invited Senator Tim Scott on the program. We've invited Vivek Ramaswamy on the pod, Governor Christie as well, Will Hurd. And some of those folks are not even polling that high. Christie right now, according to the national average, is polling at around 2%. Will Hurd is less than 1% and stuff like that. But the guy in third is somebody that I have been listening to over the last few weeks across the media tours that he's been doing. He was on State of the Union recently, not with our buddy Jake Tapper, but with uh, a fill-in host in Casey Hunt. And he was also on the All In podcast with David Sachs and a bunch of those guys who host that show. And a bunch of different questions about his platform, what he's running on. Would he pardon the former president if he becomes president and Donald Trump you know, does face these charges and is ultimately found guilty of some of these charges in some of these cases? And I want to play a little bit of what he said across the media tours that he's been doing. So take a listen to Vivek's own words about a few of these different things with respect to the LGBTQ plus community and with respect to the former president. Take a listen. The standard I use as our next president is what moves our country forward. What is the right thing for the United States of America? Right. And would having and a president the like right this answer move it is forward? to move on? And I would pardon him. I would I'm, I'm, I intend to be our next president, and yes, I do believe I will move us forward, and yes, I think one of the right ways to do that is to pardon the former president of the United States 
from what is clearly a politicized prosecution. And I'll share a view with you, Casey. This is not specific to Trump. This is part of my broader view on the justice system in our country. I think that our general norm in our Justice Department is you should not convict somebody of a process crime when there was no actual underlying crime. I think that's a major problem. So you problem. think destroying Entrapment. evidence is Even a process the, crime? I think it is, by definition, a process crime. No, nobody left, right, any legal scholar will agree with me on that statement. That is, by definition, a process crime. A crime that would not have existed but for the existence of an investigation. And if we look ourselves okay. in the mirror over the last several years, even look at the acquittals in the Gretchen Whitmer case, the fact that two people were acquitted of entrapment, I think it is a bad habit that our FBI and DOJ have gotten into intervening and creating crimes that would not have existed but for their action. One, you think it's fine to be gay, but you think it's a mental disorder in all likelihood if people want to transition. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I want to I'll leave you with a good sense of where I'm at on, on these issues, right? So I think it's at least curious that when you take the LGBTQIA plus value set and, and, and vision for what the movement stands for, it does require you to adopt simultaneously conflicting beliefs at once. The gay rights movement was predicated on the idea, which I'm quite sympathetic to, that the sex of the person that you're attracted to is hardwired on the day you're born. But now with the T component of that same movement that now says your own gender is completely fluid over the course of your own life. And I think if we're not going to observe the tension between these two observations, I think that we're purposefully having our heads stuck in the sand. I think what's happening in many cases is somebody who claims to be trans is really just gay. And part of what we're saying is it's not okay to be gay. So to answer your first question, part of what the trans movement is effectively telling people is that it's not okay to be gay. Now, if you don't know who Vivek is, Ramaswamy, uh, you maybe never heard of him before. Uh, he considered running in, in the 2022 election for U.S. Senate in Ohio. This past year, he declared his candidacy for the Republican nomination. Since he's declared that back, I think that was back in February of earlier this year, he's released 20 years of individual income tax returns. He's called on you know everybody else to do the same as well. That's running in this race. He's been, like I said, doing the press tour all over the place uh, on a bunch of different outlets that I've seen him on. And I would go encourage folks, I would encourage folks to go listen to the All In interview because there's a lot more that he says there about his position on abolishing the Department of Education. Uh, they get into more of the Trump stuff. One of the things I wanted to mention, though, real quick here, Nick, before I turn to you and what you make of Vivek, because he is the child of immigrant uh, of Indian parents, excuse me. So just like you, my friend, uh, and his parents came here. And I know you're going to want to get into like his background. He's a member of the tribe. Uh, if there was a Hispanic candidate right now, we would we would turn to me to comment on a member of the tribe running for president of the United States. But one of the things that he mentioned in that clip there with Casey Hunt from CNN uh, was something that I found that is just, again, categorically false. And it's not apples to apples. It's not even apples to pineapples. And the big thing was about this entrapment and the process crime that Trump committed, right? And again, we've reached out to Vivek. Hopefully we get to have him on the program in the coming weeks and you guys will get to hear that interview, you guys and gals out there. But you can't claim entrapment for the former president of the United States. It's not the same thing. Entrapment looks like what you see on those cop shows when they have somebody leave the car running outside with the door open and then there's cameras positioned everywhere 
with police units on standby, waiting for somebody to hop in that vehicle, take the car. And then what happens? They turn off the car. They get that person out of the car. You're under arrest for stealing a car. You could claim there you have been entrapped to commit that crime because without that car parking there and taking out, you would have not committed that crime that day, right? This is not the same thing. The former president of the United States did not see documents that were just sitting there one day and people waiting for him to grab it and hide it and then arrest him. That's not how it works. He was the former president of the United States. We have a process in place that when you do leave, and by the way, you'll hear Nima in the next segment break down that process of returning documents back to these entities that are in charge of storing these documents. If you don't do that, they tell you, hey, we're going to call the authorities. We're going to tell them that you are not complying with the guidelines and standards that we have put in place for this records retention for all intent and purpose. He didn't follow that. He disobeyed a subpoena. And then the subsequent actions of, of the special counsel have found him that he was hiding these things. And now the latest charges, which we're going to get into in the next segment with Nima, about some of the things he had other folks doing at the lower levels of his organization in terms of getting rid of evidence. Those things are crimes. That's not entrapment. Nobody entrapped him and put these documents here so that way they would see if he could grab them. This is like a rat and, and the cheese being put there for the mousetrap. And I would think that Vivek is way smarter, as you've heard him uh, orate there in some of these clips. I would think he's way smarter and he knows the difference between that. So I want to get into the comments he made about the LGBTQ plus stuff, Nick, because that stuff to me is very hot button issue right now. He got asked it. And he gave an answer that is, I don't know, it's kind of like, is one thing a result of the other? Is one thing being misdiagnosed as the other? But also, who asked you? Who cares? Who cares? Should be the bigger point in all of this. Who cares if it is gay or if somebody does want to uh, undergo one of these affirming surgeries? Who cares? It's not you. As long as they're in consultation with the doctor. And as long as their parents, if they're under the age, have given them the okay to do it. Now, he argues in that episode about getting a tattoo. Can't get a tattoo until you reach a certain legal age. And the reason they do some of these things is because you're going to regret getting that tattoo, right? And the affirming surgery that you do get, um, you can't reverse that that easily, right? So what were some of your takeaways real quick of not only Vivek's kind of similar ascension right here as the DeSantis campaign hasn't been really doing much or hasn't been doing that well. Vivek has started to shoot up in some of the polls. Like I mentioned in one poll in Ohio, he's at 13, 14%, almost neck and neck with DeSantis in that, in that primary poll. And now he's, you know, being a little bit more oversaturated on the media side. He's doing more podcasts. He's doing more television appearances. And he, in his own words, which he said on the All In podcast, he's like, I'm giving you the unfiltered version right now. I may have to apologize for it later. I may have to change, but I want to react in real time to certain things. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, I want to react in real time to certain things. So you get my unfiltered lens and perspective on it. And I can appreciate that, but also know that comes with the price of uh, maybe some apologies post what you have just said. And specifically, like I just mentioned, where he's making a comparison to entrapment that the president is undergoing, no legal scholar will tell you 
that that's what's happening. And he even said that in the clip himself, that no legal scholar, I don't know if that was a mistake by him, but he said no legal scholar would agree with me on that. Well, there you go. (laughs) They're in the legal community and you're not. What do you make of Vivek's ascension? And then some of the things that I played for you there as he's done this media tour now about his candidacy for president. You know, I'll never understand why we still continue to lionize rich people in a way that we assume that they possess the qualities of being a a good servant of people, which is essentially what a public service job is. But at some point, like most elected positions, the presidency of the United States has now become essentially a grab of power. So who better to then try to grab that power than rich people? I say all this because, you know, Vivek, First off, if you do a quick Amazon book search or any book search for that matter, you know, the three books there are attached to him. You know, first, of course, is Woke Incorporated, which is one of these other books that talks about, you know, the role that social agendas are playing by companies and why that may be wrong. Second is Nation of Victims, talking about victimhood and how that potentially, you know, is harmful to the country, I guess so. Uh, And then lastly, Capitalist Punishment. So here's a person that has an economics background that wants to make the argument that having a social platform as a company is somehow a bad thing. I don't understand the obsession about this stuff. I mean, as soon as you put out a book called woke incorporate, you've already lost me anyway. Um, And Mike has talked about the fact that we, you know, we're excited to have him on the show. And I certainly do because there are portions of that book that, Hey, I don't disagree that I don't agree with, but also I'm fascinated by the obsession about this. I don't understand the idea similar to DeSantis and they should have a woke off, I guess, but this obsession with this particular idea of people showing empathy is somehow corrosive to the American public. I'll never, ever get that. Can I real quick, the, from what I heard him say about the book, again, I have not read the book. I have not even read, you know, the flaps, the inserts, anything about the book, Amazon review, nothing from what I gather from one of his interviews that he did about the book He says that it's in response to the messaging that corporations decided to take with respect to social justice messages. And it's kind of why, if I'm not mistaken, he got pushed out of one of his companies because people wanted him to react about something. And he was like, no, we don't need to do that. We're in the financial sector. Like, let's just do our job and do it. And if you recall, you and I did have this discussion with um, a former producer at Bleacher Report we were talking about the messages that companies would send and then people would kill them with respect to, hey, that message is terrible. Why'd you even post that? No one cares what the New York Rangers thought about X, Y, Z and 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 your position on it. And so if, again, without reading the book, anything around it, that's what he positioned the book as. I'll take him at his face value. But if the book is not like that, I'm with you. Like, what is this woke mania? Like, describe it to me. Like, we killed Bethany Mandel on here. She she wrote a book on it. She couldn't even describe it in a television interview in, in, you know, 90 seconds. So I I didn't want to get you off your train of thought, but that's the way he positioned it. So I would I would love to learn more about if the book is really about corporate messaging around social uh, events or the social climate. And should they be doing that? I'm interested in learning more about that topic, but I'm not sure if the book is about that. Yeah, it seems to be one of the core tenets about what seems to be duplicitous from companies. But, you know, I and I agree with you. I think there's more of the book I want to read about this. But I 
but he has in his interviews talked about, you know, the fact that, you know, maybe our pursuit of social justice from a government standpoint is, is wrong. Um, and, that, and that's an issue I want to, I, I would want to probe and, and dig deeper on. Yeah. But his other books speak to an ideology that he possesses that just seems counter to, you know, what, what other Americans are, are okay with, which leads me to this conversation about recognizing transgendered folks as, as human beings. You know, when you talk about, when he talks about the trans movement, this, this is agenda speak. This is the idea that there's a group of people that are intentionally trying to do something that may cause harm or, or whatever it's being done to us. And when in truth, this is just the pursuit of the recognition of humanity. Again, I've, I've talked about uh, this individual on the show and I've never named them because I've never asked for their permission to use their name in this program. But I've worked with someone previously who had gone, who had gone through the, who had gone through the process, who recognized at, at some point that the, that the gender that they were born into was not who they truly were. And they pursued, they pursued that. I don't know how far medically this person went, but, but in the end, I call this person by a different name and this person looks different. That was the, that was just their journey. I, I hesitate on choice on this one because similar to talking about the, about you know, the gay and lesbian community, I don't believe it's a choice. I believe it's who you are. And if in the discovery of that, it happens much later on in life, that's fine too. You know, but Vivek, like many others, tends to talk about the, you know, about transgendered folks as, as somehow they're on this pursuit of doing something that's counter to what, you know, the, you know, what homosexuals were pursuing with gay rights and gay marriage and such. And it's, it's offensive, you know, to say that, you know, the the pursuit of, of human rights for gay people is because they recognize a specific gender that they were attracted to is like, you're, you're just trying to parse that. And I don't, and I don't see the point. I don't understand why there's this need to to target a group of people and to consider what they're doing to be an agenda when truly they're just trying to live and breathe like the rest of us. And like you said, Mike, I don't to me, it's it's an absence of a policy vision. You know, I haven't I've listened to some of Vivek's speeches and, and things he said, and I'm still struggling with getting a sense of what is his, his vision for the economy. Um, what he th- thinks is really different or what he thinks is the where this current administration is not going in the right direction. But speaking of administrations, you talked about Trump, as you talked about before, of process crime, which I'm still scratching my head what the hell that means. A crime is a crime. The idea that, well, it wouldn't have been a crime if, you, if we didn't prosecute it. What the hell does that mean? Like, it, this is not something that's not on the books. It is very clear. If you are taking you know, classified information from a government office, there's a problem with that. And you can't clearly declassify it, as the former president said. So I don't understand that. The and this attempt to try to mince words here. You know, this is I mean, he sounds like Gerald Ford, honestly. This idea of well, we must move forward and let's go ahead and pardon the former president because I don't agree with what they did. Well, that's what the same crap that Ford did with Nixon. It's the same idea, like we let's go move forward, but I don't want to lose those votes from the former president. So yeah, I need them. So I want to make sure I'm doing right by the MAGA crowd. So I'm gonna you know, forgive this former president. Um, and it seems like every Republican does that. They try to court the Trump voters, which again are sizable. So I guess that makes sense, but no one wants to deal with the fact that there are some true legal issues that this person has done. And if he is indeed guilty, then he's not deserving of a pardon. Uh, but just like other 
politicians, I think there are things that Vivek, you know, talks out of the, both sides of his mouth on. And good for him to do well. You mentioned before that he, like me, are both, you know, um, of Indian descent. Um, the difference, though, is that I don't look at, you know, transgendered folks. I don't look at social issues in this country as somehow as a as a negative um because i was raised better to be honest and yeah it's it's funny because i mean you know i know recently um there was a baseball player that um i forget his name got taken by toronto in the mlb draft 15th or 20th i believe um his first name is arjun and there was a sense of pride i had that a indian a indian player who actually was mostly playing cricket till he turned over um, is now has an opportunity to play major league baseball. I mean, we saw that almost last year with the Mets and um, but that felt really cool to see that because representation is important. But in the case of Vivek, you know, fundamentally, if the things you believe in are things that I just find distasteful, then I don't care where you came from. We, we can't jive on this. I'm not going to run into this person, even if he's on the show and, you know, exchange our mother's recipes for making dosa. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to look at this dude and say, what is wrong with you? And again, I ask the question as always, you know, we have yet, here's just another rich person similar to Trump that thinks that they can help move this country forward through the form of public service. And historically, we know that just doesn't tend to work with very rare exceptions. Well, we look forward, like I said, we've invited Vivek on the program We'll let you guys and gals out there know uh, when that interview will happen with Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, but coming up, we've got a great interview with a former assistant U.S. attorney, Nima Romani. Nima breaks down everything that happened last week in the documents case with former President Trump and in addition to the Hunter Biden plea deal that fell through. Nima, when we come back after the break. 
This episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by the good folks over at Razoo. Razoo is a brand new networking and collaborating service for artists in the music industry, providing music creators the collaborative tools to create and enhance songs virtually. Find out more about Razoo at razoo.io today. All right, here to help us break down all of the news surrounding former President Trump, and the recent January 6th stuff with the special counsel, uh, the documents case, and some of the news that happened last week, plus the Hunter Biden plea deal. I want to learn more about it. So joining us right now, Nima Romani, former assistant U.S. attorney, president of West Coast Trial Lawyers. Nima, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Of course, Mike, Nick, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Listen, you know, Nima, I, I reached out to you and, and your folks because I've been seeing you across ABC News. I mean, I forget what other channels and outlets you've been breaking a lot of this stuff down. You're a former assistant U.S. attorney. There's been so much um, legal news around the former president of the United States. Right. And it's really hard for a lot of people to keep up with stuff, especially because I feel like and I say this as somebody that worked in the media space. Um, a lot of the times the networks start to hype this stuff up. And the big thing that they hyped up was this potential January 6th investigation with the special counsel, uh, the former president getting a target letter and him thinking that an indictment would be coming soon. We didn't get that, but we got something added on to the documents case uh, that the former president was charged with down here in Miami, where I live, actually, funny enough. Um, so why don't you take our audience a little bit inside what happened with all of that? Now the third defendant that's been named in the case. Can you break down a little bit of what transpired last week with respect to the documents case? Well, we got a superseding indictment last week. So we got a new co-defendant and some new charges. So the new charges relate to one additional Espionage Act charge, which really that's just another document, right? And that's the Iran attack document that everyone's reported on. But what was really more important or a couple additional obstruction counts. And it relates to an incident where allegedly, at least the former president asked one of his employees to destroy video. And that video would have shown the boxes of classified documents being moved. So we also got a new co-defendant and that's Mr. Carlos de Oliveira, who's now wrapped up in all this. So obviously we learned Walt Nada's name for the first time during the initial indictment. And now we have another employee. So whenever you have these, uh, uh, I don't want to use the wrong term, but these are lower level individuals, right? This isn't the main target of special counsel Jack Smith. There's gonna be a lot of pressure on them to flip on the former president. They're going to look at years in prison. And although Trump is paying for their legal bills, at the end of the day, whenever you're deciding, hey, do I cooperate, cut a deal, avoid federal prison time, or do I remain loyal? Nine times out of 10, most people flip under that kind of pressure. Nima, we're at a time now where we've seen so much activity from the special counsel's office, this current one, that it seems pretty like pretty much a good time to compare what we've seen going on, you know, under Jack Smith, as opposed to what we saw earlier with Robert Mueller in terms of just their going away about pursuing the truth and, you know, where they want to move forward. Obviously, Mueller's work leads to a report. And where Smith is going seems to be a little bit more to a courtroom. What's your assessment about just the different approaches that these two gentlemen have had? And where are you in terms of, of the amount of fact finding of where this leads to in terms of charges and the like? What seems different this time around as a special counsel is focusing on this particular former president? Well, yeah, I mean, whenever you're dealing with, you know, committees or prosecutors, there's ones that can make recommendations and there's ones that I can actually do 
things, right? So you look at, for instance, you know, uh, Mueller, you know, it's really, I mean, it's great, you know, you, you conduct these investigations, you make recommendations, but, you know, prosecutions require uh, an attorney, a prosecutor is willing to act on those recommendations. So, you know, I kind of go back to the, the January 6th committee, you know, there was a lot of time and effort spent on that and they did great work, but unless there's a prosecutor who's willing to pick up that baton and run with it, it doesn't mean a whole lot. So now you have special counsel Jack Smith who's willing to do that. And for years, obviously I've been covering Trump since, you know, the 2020 election and the capital rights and all that. And I always said to myself, is there someone who's willing to take on the most politically charged prosecution in American history, charging a former president. And that initial prosecutor was Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. But now you're having Jack Smith, who's the first to federally indict a former president, at least once in one case. And I fully expect him to be indicted very soon in a matter of days, if not weeks, related to the 2020 election as well. You know, Nima, you kind of fed into the follow up there because I was going to ask you, you mentioned Alvin Bragg. There's so many different cases surrounding the former president to the lay person. It could seem like arduous. There's so many different things. The calendar for next year is going to be swamped with respect to cases. And, and I wanted to kind of break down a little bit from your lens, legal perspective, if you were advising the former president, right? He's got the two civil trials, a documents case, the New York case with Alvin Bragg. If he's a client of yours, are you working in conjunction with some of his other attorneys in some of these cases, even though they don't pertain to each other? It's the former president's running for the current office of the presidency. So a lot of the stuff that he's saying in public about these cases could be used against them in a court of law. Can you take our audience a little bit inside the lawyer aspect of this, of you know, wrangling all of this stuff that the former president is facing? And how would you advise it or handle it if you were working for him? If I were advising the president, I'd tell him two things. First, pay my bills. And second, follow my advice, because here's someone who's notorious for not doing either. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll set aside the civil cases for a moment, because obviously Trump has said things that have, has gotten in, into civil trouble, even after the defamation verdict, he sort of doubled down and potentially is going to have to pay even more damages. But let's put those aside, because we all know, you know, when it comes to money, that's a lot less serious than the criminal cases. We have two right now, and I fully expect there to be four, a second federal indictment and an, an indictment there in Atlanta. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis is probably going to indict uh, Donald Trump sometime in August. So, But if I'm analyzing the cases as they exist now, the two criminal cases, I have to say the Manhattan case is a lot less serious than the classified documents case for a couple of reasons. First, the potential penalties in state court are usually less. But I think Trump has a ready-made defense there because New York law is unique in that for a false business record to be a felony, it has to be in furtherance of or to cover up another crime. So you know, we're talking about payments made to Stormy Daniels. Trump has, and I think we'll continue to argue, that he made those payments to save his family from embarrassment. You know, as opposed to wanting to make uh, illegal campaign contributions, it's, it's sort of a convoluted argument the Manhattan DA is making. So I think there's a real possibility that case gets reduced from a felony to a misdemeanor. At least Trump has a good legal argument there. I don't think he has a real good leg to stand on there in uh, South Florida where you live, because really... He's admitted knowledge and intent. He's gone out in true social. He said, hey, I knew the documents were classified. I could declassify them. 
Well, that's great if your argument works, but if not, you're admitting knowledge and intent. You're admitting to breaking the law. And now that you have this evidence where he's asking his employees to allegedly delete evidence, that's not something innocent people do. So given the seriousness of the case, given the potential maximum sentence on the obstruction, it's 20 years on some of the espionage act, you're looking at 10 years of false statements, five years, but you're looking at years in federal prison, even on the advisory sentencing guidelines, it's at least three, four years. That case is a lot more serious. And if I'm advising Donald Trump, that's the case I said, you got to take the most seriously because that's the one that may, you know, cause you to end up in federal prison, even though you have a favorable judge and judge Cannon. Nima, it's funny. I think we've had, you know, a few other you know legal experts on this show. And it seems like we've always asked that question to every single person, if you're going to advise the president, which <laughs> tells you, <laughs> you know, as a for as a, as a, as a foreign president, like that's a lot of need for legal advice. That said, you know, supporters of the president have talked about all of these attempts at prosecution and all these uh, legal efforts um, to, you know, quote unquote, go after the former president it seems to be examples of what would be considered the quote unquote weapon, weaponization of the government. As someone who has sat in the prosecutor's desk before, can you just take us through at a global level, you know, these these indictments or where we're heading toward trial and the such, just from the standpoint of you know of legality, where is the facts living here? And in your estimation, is if I'm drawing a pie chart of these different cases, what sliver of this feels political and what of this feels like just sound legal approaches to to addressing someone who may have committed a crime? Look, obviously we're dealing with a very unique case, unprecedented. So where law and politics intersect. But you know, what I tell people, and I'm sure we're going to talk about Hunter Biden and others, you know, I may be a Democrat, but I'm a law and order Democrat. So if someone breaks the law, I don't care who they are. If you're Hillary, if you're Hunter, if you're Donald Trump, you should be prosecuted. But let's just take the documents case and explain why Donald Trump is being prosecuted here. This isn't a situation where Mike Pence or Joe Biden had some classified documents and they cooperated with the archives to get those documents back. Here's someone in Donald Trump who, for more than one year, the archives asked for the documents to be returned. He ignored them. The archives said, hey, if you don't comply, we're going to make a referral to the Department of Justice. We all know these executive agencies that can't enforce the law. they got to make the referral. Still, even without warning, Trump doesn't return the documents. Of course, DOJ gets involved, they issue a grand jury subpoena. And what does Donald Trump do? At least allegedly, he hides the documents, right? He has a move from his storage to his personal residence. I mean, it's really one of those cases where the cover up is worse than the crime, and we have a nation of laws. So, had Trump done the right thing, had he cooperated with his lawyers, had he just got the documents back to where they belong, we wouldn't be here. So, you know, that's how I distinguish this case, at least with respect to the documents from. You know, Pence and uh, Joe Biden and others who may have mishandled classified documents. Now, Nima, you're feeding for perfectly into these follow ups because you just mentioned Hunter Biden. We are going to discuss Hunter Biden here because, you know, uh, the, the current president right now is kind of being uh, painted with the same brush as the former president was in terms of the business dealings that he's had with his sons. Right. To a lesser extent. And it's different, obviously, the Trump organization versus what uh, President Biden did after he left the the, the vice presidency uh, back in 2016. But my question for you is for the people out there listening and watching, Hunter Biden has become like the ire of everybody. And he recently got this plea deal 
which uh, there was a couple of charges there. No jail time was probably going to be served out of this. And then the plea deal kind of fell through and the judge just did not like the terms of it. Or I would love for you to take our audience inside what the original charges were and then what fell through with the plea deal and kind of where does it stand right now? Because it seems like the judge was saying, if you're still investigating this individual, then you can't have him accept this type of plea deal if more charges are going to come down the pipe. Am I am I oversimplifying that? Am I getting that wrong? What can you explain about the Hunter Biden plea deal and how this went wrong? Yeah, you're getting it right. So, you know, just taking a step back, I can tell you my position is Hunter Biden got an amazing deal. I mean, that's not something that's typical in our federal system. And I always like to say I put more than a thousand people in jail and I never once gave a pretrial diversion deal. Misdemeanors on the federal system are, are pretty rare in and of itself, but diversion is just not something you see. So Hunter Biden got an amazing deal. Maybe he had great lawyers, maybe, um, you know, he cooperated, but for whatever reason, he should be thanking his attorneys. Now let's just talk about what went wrong last week. So let's separate the plea agreement from the, diversion agreement. So there, there's two different documents we're dealing with. So once the deal was announced, Hunter Biden's lawyers came out publicly and said, this resolves all the federal investigations into Hunter Biden. Now, that was not documented in the plea agreement. And so the plea agreement is filed with the court. The judge has to read it, approve it, and that type of thing. It may have been in the diversion agreement. I don't know, because the diversion agreement is between the defendant and the government, the U.S. Attorney's Office. It's an agreement not to prosecute, essentially, if you comply with the terms of the, of the agreement. So it's not a court document. So the first issue that we dealt with was during the plea agreement, you have the judge asking, hey, does this resolve everything? The government saying, well, no, not necessarily. You have Hunter Biden's lawyers who are saying, yeah, it does. So there's really still no, no meeting of the minds, and that hadn't been ironed out. Well, that's something that should have been taken care of beforehand. If you have the criminal defendant's lawyer saying this resolves everything, if you disagree with that, if you're the government, you, you got to make sure that that's very clear. You don't want a defendant, regardless of whether it's Hunter Biden or anyone, pleading to something that they don't understand or where there's some sort of disagreement. The other issue, the second issue, it's a constitutional issue. It's a separation of powers issue. Whenever you're dealing with prosecution or non-prosecution, that's an agreement between the executive branch, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney's Office, Weiss's office, who was appointed by Trump, and the defendant. It's not proper for Congress, the legislative branch, to get involved, and it's not proper for the judiciary to get involved. So, the issue was, in terms of complying with diversion, the parties didn't trust each other, so they asked the judge to make a ruling whether Hunter Biden was going to ultimately comply with the terms of the diversion such that the addict in possession charge goes away. Well, that's not appropriate for a judge to do, just like it's not appropriate for a House committee to get involved and file motions in the case. So the judge is saying, listen, I can't do this. This is unconstitutional. And that's why we had the two issues in the case. But I can tell you this, Hunter Biden's lawyers are going to want that deal because it's a very good deal. And if Joe Biden doesn't get reelected, I can tell you that another U.S. attorney may take a very different view and prosecute Hunter Biden a lot more aggressively. Nima, to that end, you know, criticism that comes up in this case is the idea that it can be perceived as a two-tiered legal system. 
you know, that what Hunter Biden is getting or experiencing is not necessarily the case for the average citizen. That's, again, something that's put out there. But just from you, from a legal standpoint, and you were talking about that before. I mean, you know, Hunter's got great lawyers and this is, you know, working out favorably from in this instance and maybe not so much with a different um, judge in this case. But does that feel like an accurate assessment, though, that if this is not the president's son, perhaps the the way that this situation plays out may result in jail or a more harsher or a more harsher penalty? Potentially. I mean, obviously, Hunter Biden has access to funds and a lot better lawyers than, you know, you know, your average Joe. But if you're looking at the charges themselves, what? Addict in possession is rarely charged on its own. It's something that's usually tacked on to other crimes. Uh, you know, and when you're dealing with tax issues, failure to file, most people, they resolve those types of cases administratively at the audit phase. Or, you know, the IRS will file a civil lawsuit. There's not a whole lot of tax cases that really rise to the level of criminal prosecution. So, you know, on one hand, I agree that this is a good deal. But on the other, I can say that you know, these types of charges aren't typically prosecuted at the federal level. And you have a U.S. attorney that was appointed by Trump. Biden kept him on in Weiss, and he continued this investigation uh, well into Biden's tenure. So I don't think a lot of conservatives can really criticize Weiss's handling of this case. I mean, they, they may not like the results, but again, here's someone that was appointed by Trump. So... You know, it's not like Joe Biden got involved. He didn't pardon his son. He didn't fire uh, the U.S. attorney who was handling the case. So, you know, all in all, I think it was really Weiss's decision. And there's not a whole lot that any of us can do about it. Nima Romani is a former assistant U.S. attorney. You can check him out. West Coast trial lawyers. Nima, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today and breaking down everything with former President Trump. Hunter Biden, continued success to you, sir. Please stay safe. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right, our thank yous there to Nima Romani, like I mentioned, former assistant U.S. attorney, now the president and CEO of West Coast Trial Lawyers. Go check him out, follow him across social media. He does a great job. You know, I just saw him, like I said, I was mentioning to him in the interview, but truly, uh, ABC News, Newsmax, CNN, HLN, I've seen this guy everywhere breaking this stuff down. And, you know, again, somebody that worked, you know, I think in the orbit of the Department of Justice. He gets this stuff, right? Like there, there, is, uh, there is something to the Hunter Biden stuff. And I think I was mentioning to the, him to this off air. I was mentioning this to him off air, excuse me, about when people saw the plea deal, right? Everybody ran to social media or to whatever news outlet to kind of find out legal beagles interpretation of this plea deal. Is it a sweetheart deal? Is he getting away because it's his you know, father's last name? Um, X, Y, Z. What were the initial crimes and stuff like that? Forget about the buzzwords and talking points of the extreme right that think all of this, you know, is, is you know, you know what they think. But um, so once you start to break that down, then you find out the plea deal broke down itself. 
And the judge is like, nope, can't accept this. And now you're like, well, wait a minute. Are the people on the far right actually accurate here that something's being done? Somebody's being coerced here because like these were like charges that anybody else that didn't have that last name would be going to jail. And then the Trump stuff, like I mentioned, everybody has been waiting for this bombshell of this second federal indictment. That did not come last week. This new stuff came out in documents case instead. And the breakdown that Nima gave you there was great about all of these, you know, up the pending charges and how he really feels like this is the one that the president should be taking serious. It's like, shut up. This is the one you should be taking serious. Stop talking about it because you've admitted already that you declassified these in your mind. Like there's, <laughs> there's video out there of you doing that. What were your quick takeaways as we uh, say goodbye to the folks here in our, in our final segment? What were some of your takeaways from talking to Nima there? Yeah. When he talked about you know, the president admitting he declassified because he feels he could, which is not legally sound. It's it's the Rick James couch story again. And I've used this analogy before. You know, of course, I didn't put my feet on the couch. Yeah, I put my feet on Eddie's couch. Right. Like you just say it so easily that it, like you got to pay attention to the fact that, wait a minute, you just contradicted what you just said. What I appreciate about these conversations with legal experts, especially when it comes to the former president, is that there are so many things being put out there that often run through the lens or through the, yeah, through the lens of, of social media. So, you know, for any of us who are not necessarily, and Mike, I give you credit for this when indictments come in and other pieces of information, Mike is on it, folks. Mike is reading it. Mike's sending me screenshots of some of the things for me to pay attention to. And then usually I'll head on over to read portions of it, or you'll go to Washington post or somewhere and just get a little bit more information. But yeah, for someone like Neba, though, this is really much about trying to make sense of the madness, but doing it from a way truly of being objective. You know, Neba shared his political leanings, but recognizes the fact that from a legal standpoint, here's where we are with these pieces. The other thing that came to me also was the fact that, you know, we've had we've asked this question so many times of, you know, if you're advising the president, which of these cases is the one that's keeping you up at night? Right. And I forget the first person we asked that question to. And as time has proceeded, there are more and more legal matters coming up that the answer to the first question may be changed. Like if we brought that person back and said, hey, what do you think now? They may not say Georgia. They may say what's happening, Mike, in your state of Florida. And that's just been fascinating. So, you know, Nima just adds to really a just a lengthy story about, you know, what's going on with the former president. Yeah, no, he did a great job. And like I said, go follow him across social media for this show. Follow us across social media, IG, TikTok at Can We Please Talk podcast on Twitter at Can We Please Talk. Head to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk podcast and YouTube. If you want to see the video portion of our interview here with Nima, hit the subscribe button for me, too, while you're there. Audio podcast platforms, you know, by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody listens to us on Good Pods. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. We can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.